Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, like that whole Yoga Sutras idea of uh, the, the fact that the eagle spreads its wings high then brings its wings down, like being the kind of the cycle of life almost that you have to... Uh, like you have to experience growth in its fullest form, keep pushing yourself and your boundaries of growth and ex and then like keep pushing yourself. And then there comes a point when you want nothing more in the world and you want to bring it down. Mm -hmm. Like you want to kind of like bring the wings down and spend inordinate amount of time, time in silence and contemplation. I don't think that's ever seeped into the West, right? Because, uh, no matter what you do, you want more and more and more, not just materially, but emotionally you want to keep growing, keep doing more things, keep stretching yourself. There is never that time for you to think that I've experienced everything in the world. Now I have to just bring it down. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Karin, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you, Shini. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I actually came across your story because you wrote in and uh, somehow you managed to accomplish a miracle of all miracles, which was to get me to read a fiction book, which you wrote. Uh, so rather than starting with a story in the background, I want to start a little bit differently than I have in the past. Uh, I want to start by asking you, what in your mind is one experience or memory of childhood of a person or event that you feel has ultimately led you down the trajectory of doing all the work that you do? Oh, it's a good question. So, so I, it, maybe it's one I- image or it's more like a collage mm-hmm. that I grew, I grew up in the Himalayas in India in a place called Shimla. And Shimla was like, is right at the foothills of the Himalayas in the north of India. And a lot of the experiences growing up didn't make a, a lot of sense because, um, uh, for instance, at a, at a very regular level, we would see a lot of people, uh, lawyers, doctors, engineers, Indian, as well as outside from the West, come and live near the village in ashrams and caves and stuff. And they would actually do that. And uh, and at that point, I, I couldn't, we could never understand their motives, you know, growing up. But I think like what's happened with me over a course of 30 years or so after I've come out of after I went away from our town where I grew up was uh, I think those images meant something because I ended up doing a kind of something similar not just in the sabbatical but over a period of time I've always been pulled to this idea of like the other world you know like this like call it spirituality but that's just a vague word but like I've just been pulled to this Indian mystical traditions a lot and I think a lot of it came from seeing all those people around me in the childhood hmm. yeah what has been the impact on uh, your relationships with other people uh, as a byproduct of sort of growing up in what sounds very much like a small town environment in India when most of India, based on what we see, is just overcrowding and craziness? Yeah, and we I grew up in a very idyllic kind of a town, or at least at that time. Now it, that also has like expanded a lot, so it's become more commercial. But at that time, it was pretty... Uh, so, so I think for a long time, it's almost the opposite effect happened. Uh, I grew up with a very tight sense of community mm-hmm. because the small town had everybody knew everybody. I had 30 or 40 relatives who lived there, as you can imagine in an Indian family. But also <laughs> the family was even more, uh, the the community was even more tight-knit. Mm-hmm. So I think for a long period of time, I just didn't understand this concept of individual space and individual accomplishment. So uh, my coming to the U.S., uh, for the first time was the first time I had enough space in my life to even think about all of those things. So I think, so I think in a way, it's the opposite effect. I, I feel like uh, getting away from the town really helped me become liberated to pursue my interests in some form. Like I didn't even know for the first 28 years of my life, I didn't know why I could write a novel. So I started writing at age 28 and published my first novel in, at age 29. So in the last six, seven years, I've really expanded my writing and all of that stuff. But, it, but it's surprising that I didn't have those. I just didn't have enough space in my life to even know what I could be. Mm. Yeah. So community is such an interesting concept to me because I, I, you know, I, I wrote this post recently that seems to be going kind of viral on Medium at the moment uh, about the 38 things I've learned from 38 years on the planet. Mm. And one of the things that I said is that we're more connected than we've ever been at any time in history, and yet we're lonelier than we've ever been at mm-hmm. any time in history. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, um, even though you know you you obviously found individualism, uh, is community something that you still seek out in your life and your work? And if so, how? And, and more importantly, how do other people bring a sense of community into their lives in a world that is you know continually connected but more and more lonely? 
I feel if you're living your dharma in some form like that this beautiful word in Sanskrit called dharma mm-hmm. I I felt that when I'm true to my dharma I always am operating with a sense of community because um because I guess my life is surrounded by people who are on the same path and when I'm off my dharma I think that's when my sense of community diminishes completely Mm. So 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 I think like I I guess the best thing that you can do to build a community instead of doing a very active like outreach I think you just have to live your dharma in some sense. Okay, so let's define what dharma is for people uh and then more importantly let's talk about how one goes about finding it and how yeah. your own work um and and everything that you have done have kind of led you down the path of finding and discovering it. Yeah and I love the word dharma because it's very interesting and layered and very different in the east as compared to the west in some form because uh, so so let's start with defining dharma so in uh, dharma for me is the innate tendency of every being right and uh, like the trees dharma is to grow and bear fruit uh, it's not to become a river or to dress up and go to office the, like that's the innate tendency of a tree mm-hmm. in the same way uh, the difference in the humans is that the dharma is a more fluid concept and not a static concept you are born with a certain i guess innate tendency but your actions and your thoughts will change that tendency almost so 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 in a sense the only goal for you in a way is to purify your thoughts and actions to the level that you are kind of living that dharma so so having said that what i mean by that is uh if i take it from my own life perspective um i've never felt this calling to become a full time writer or a full despite some significant success in writing i've never felt this calling because i've always felt that my dharma is to be in business in some form mm-hmm. so so i've always felt uh that what i need to do is to purify my actions in business and that will lead me to uh a, 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 like a different karma cause and effect and like i i so purifying my actions will lead you lead me to purer and purer reactions which in turn will allow enough space in my life to for me to change right mm-hmm. so in a sense what i've seen with myself is that 8 years ago when i first started writing i'd never written a novel before i wrote with some purity and i've seen that this creative side has deepened and deepened and the business side has like lessened a little bit so i uh, so so what i feel is that like uh, like unlike the us act of becoming all the time that you always go in this quest of wanting to become something mm-hmm. so you you go from quitting your job as a lawyer to becoming a yoga teacher for instance there's just too much act of like dramatic reinventions and becoming i almost feel that you have to let your purpose come to you by purifying where you are and acting in line with your tendency where you are Mm. So so it's almost like the like the, you don't have to become with that aggression you just have to be and be pure in what you're doing and that opens up things you know Yeah I guess the the question for me is yeah. uh you know I think from from reading the book and we'll talk about the book in more detail it seems that there's this very western tendency to seek out uh right. what eastern mysticism provides right like we we think that to find enlightenment we have to go and you know meditate at ashrams in india and uh i think you know one of the more interesting things was i uh, you almost subtly poked fun at all the sort of you know yeah. foreigners who come there for this spiritual thing with their crystals <laughs> yes. and candles and these hippies uh, yeah. and yet you know we, we live in a world that perpetuates a lot of that yeah. sort of mantra so I, i guess you know i am wondering how in our day-to-day lives we find that sense of purity that you're talking about um how we bring it about in our day-to-day actions and the way we live on a day-to-day basis without having to spend you know all this time at an ashram in india yeah no that's true and i think that's where like uh, but what what happens in the west is i that's this famous saying that like the robes don't make a monk i think what happens is that when here people wear the robes too quickly so the moment they start meditating and uh, doing a little bit of yoga they want to wear the robes of the monk and like start to become a part of this lifestyle and start talking about vibrations and this and that but that's not very authentic so i think what you have to in my opinion do is use all these practices to be where you are in a better way right so i like i like so the moment you start learning yoga and meditation you don't have to quit to become a teacher or to uh, or to like you know go into a very very radical self re- reinvention process you just have to be just a little bit better you become a little better every day on your own mm-hmm. so i so i think the like like the yoga thought of the chittavritti nirodha this idea that your goal is really to stop the fluctuations of the thought waves wherever you are i think that's the power of what you have to do really mm-hmm. so if you like uh, you know use these practices to be a little silent in what you do 
and that leads to i guess that leads to the space that opens up new paths versus you having to seek out new paths mm-hmm. so you know, I, yeah. I think that to me, you're this sort of walking contradiction uh, and, a, and a, a really bizarre paradox because you grew up in an Indian community, but you have this very sort of spiritual, creative side and artistic side, and yet you work as an executive. So a couple of questions come from that. Um, one is, is, you know, what your parents were like um, and what the impact that they've had on you has been. Uh, and the other is something that I think is on my mind because uh, our friend, Mai Carlos, talked about it. She talked about how certain cultures, especially in the Panamanian culture, they have sort of unwritten cultural dogmas. And of course, Indians have, you know, literally probably they could fill, you know, the Library of Congress with unwritten cultural dogmas. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering how you resolve the tension between those two things. My, when I grew up, my parents were as Indian as they get. My mother was a school teacher. My dad was in the army and they were very uh, like, and I think it wasn't a, as much a cultural aspect as much as an economic environment. We were all trained, as you would well know, to become either doctors or engineers, right? Yeah. Like that was the only two paradigms. And you quickly knew whether you would become an, a doctor or not, right? Because you would know immediately. And if you didn't, and, and like 80% of the people knew that they wouldn't be doctors, you, you were very single-mindedly focused on becoming an engineer, so I think for the first, I guess, 21, 22 years of my life, I didn't think at all. So mm-hmm. I had no independent thought at all on who I wanted to be. I was just following the path laid out for me, mm-hmm. which was to kind of get into engineering college, get into business school and then become an engineer. And I like it sounds very draconian as I speak now. But in some form or the other, I felt that there was some merit in the system in which you are not almost al- either allowed to or you don't have the space to make very dramatic decisions when your mind is not mature enough almost. So I think in the US what I've seen is that people have too much of a burden at age 16 to figure out what they want to do and that's why they like, you know, sometimes don't make the best decisions. And and I think there's some merit in the system which we ended up with, right? So uh, So I grew up in a very conventional household with a very conventional kind of way of thinking and uh, and became an engineer and then went to business school and started working in corporations and and then I like uh, then I eventually did follow my creative instincts and stuff, but um, yeah, but but it's never been like uh, uh, it's been a very gradual shift almost, mm. you know. Like I've moved from corporations to doing this, but I've also I've always retained my job for many reasons. One is I, I actually express my dharma through it. I truly feel that I'm I'm meant to be in business and corporate, so I feel nothing against it. Mm-hmm. And then I think more importantly, what I felt is that when I not tying my passion to money has been the best decisions I've, I've ever made. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've almost like very singularly and very thoughtfully, not due to any pressure at all. So the, the more specific example here is that in 2012 or 2013, was it uh, that I? Uh, it, it was the same month that my second novel was optioned into a Hollywood film with very go- with a very significant deal. Mm-hmm. In the same month as I got a worldwide book deal for this third novel, so I think it all happened within the same month. Where there was this window where almost everybody was telling me the opposite, which is this is your time to, I guess, pursue your passion and become a writer. And I've never, and even then, I decided not to, yeah. because I've always felt it. It's been very liberating for me to answer my deepest questions through my writing and never write for um, like forever thinking about my niche, my industry, my audience, my platform. I've never thought of those things. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I think that's been almost the success of my writing because like the first two novels ended up doing very well in India because they captured a zeitgeist of a time, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I was writing from a very deep sense of answering my own questions that always resonated with a lot of people. And and so anyway, so that choice has been very deliberate and I've never, and I don't think I'm going to change that unless my dharma changes almost by its own accord, you know? Mm. Yeah. What are the deepest questions that you were seeking answers to through your writing? Surprising, it's changed a lot. So I, in the third novel, which you've just read, or my first yeah. international novel, I think you, like those questions were the deepest questions that a human poses, right? Why was the world created? What is the nature of the creating energy? Why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? I had these questions because... Like, A, I've always had these questions, but my mother, like, had a very, like, dramatic and drastic decline with cancer in a very physical way mm-hmm. over a short period of time. And I think all these questions just surfaced up, like, in a very urgent way. So, so, so I think answering these questions became very important to me with, I guess, the third novel. But I, I, but in my early novels also, I've, like, raised, 
like the second one, which did very well in India, the reason it did well in almost was because I was raising the question of what does success mean in the world? Um, and my answer was atypical for the Indian conditioning. And I think that kind of like had a lot of resonance with, um, with, 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 I guess, the youth going through it in a, in a very seismic shift happening in society at that point. So, so yeah, so I think they've all answered questions that have been very important in my life at that point in time. Hmm. Do you think that uh, to bring these kinds of questions to the surface in our own lives and to really seek out answers to them, we have to experience something as difficult as, you know, losing a mother to uh, a life-threatening illness or something that is really, really traumatic? Because the reason I'm asking this is I have often found that just from not only in my own experience, but yeah. from speaking with so many people that I have, you having heard our interviews know this, uh, that often big change in, you know, this tendency to seek out answers to these very deep questions often is the byproduct of difficult things happening in our lives. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, there is a role of suffering in, uh, in like in, in some form or the other suffering always will lead you to a much a visceral experience with suffering is gonna always lead you to a non like a a more personal pursuit than any intellectual question right so i think when you have a visceral experience with it then you ask these kind of questions in a more real way so that happens but personally shini i'm a little bit on a this 414 model that i kind of define which is i work for four years and then take a year off and then work for four years take a year off so i've done that over the last decade or so and i've done three cycles of it mm -hmm. And and I think I'm I'm almost consciously allowing myself this space. I'm building in this space to contemplate almost. Yeah. So it's not like I work and write. I almost work in a very goal-driven way in the four years that I'm working, and then I take a year off to, I guess, just be completely consciously goal goalless. Um, just live in kind of very physical austerity, not read a lot, not have this constant hankering to become better, to grow. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of constantly, I'm letting be in order to like allow that space for contemplation, if you will. What have been the byproducts of those years off uh, in terms of how you've seen the world differently uh, before and after those experiences? So many different things have happened in these years. So I've done it three times, one or two. The first one was not deliberate. This, not deliberate in the sense it was just a year off to travel. I didn't realize I would end up with this model. Mm -hmm. But now I think the consistent things that happen is, A, I make a lot of decisions out of spontaneity and intuitiveness than I ever do before the, uh, in the years that I'm working. Because in a way, I'm almost very left-brained and logical. That's my natural way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And I think in this year of I'm almost training, I, 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 I become very spontaneous. And I think that comes back to my life a lot. Like I'm very comfortable then of, for instance, writing a novel without any outline or trajectory at all of letting the characters tell their story. Stuff, stuff like that would be very unnatural to my way of being. So it makes me very spontaneous. I... I think the silence is beautiful because what happens with someone like me is that I have this constant need to become better, right? So as a result, I read a lot. I consume a lot of self-help blogs. I, I read fiction. I, I, I read a lot of things to become better and, and like listen to podcasts or whatever. Like, But the point is that this whole year in which I'm almost not reading too much or anything at all, that silence is very fertile creatively because... Mm. I, like what I've noticed with myself is that I end up uh, otherwise regurgitating a lot of ideas that I'm hearing unconsciously. While in this year, I feel that my creations are have a lot of purity to them because they come from a place of deep silence. That that happens. Then I think the physical austerity is very important also because I think we in this year, in the last year, for instance, my wife and I lived in an like we went from Europe to India by road, like you know, sleeping on train stations and like you know, hostels and all that stuff. And then in India, we lived in an ashram for four or five months where we were in a just sleeping on a floor and living like taking cold showers every day or whatever. Like those physical austerity becomes very liberating once again because I think all my decisions become very honest when I come back. Uh, like they're very linked to what, like they're never linked to any physical convenience, if you will. You know, like I'm never thinking about material things in some form. I think it's very, uh, and it's it's easy to do it intellectually. I think I emotionally get liberated in a way that I genuinely have viscerally understood that it that all I need to be happy is a floor in an ashram in a cold shower. So I just make decisions out of more uh, like deeper places, I think, in some ways. So all, all these things happen for me in this year, you know. What? has been the impact of the one-year periods on the four-year periods and the way you live your life? And, and more importantly, what can people take away from this? 
Um, yeah, the four-year periods, uh, and it's almost like I come back with the, it, it, the the microcosm of that is that it's the same thing in a day. Like in a in a single day, I try to try to, and now with two like toddler, like a toddler and an infant, it's becoming harder and harder. But <laughs> I, I tend to, I try to have a like a meditation. Definitely, I meditate in the night, no matter what time I sleep. So there's a meditation practice in the night and a, a, as much of stolen moments as I can manage in the morning. The the impact of that is that it just gives you a little bit of a and in the same way that one year uh, coming back to the four years at a microcosm um, I think the biggest thing that happens is that my action reaction cycle breaks a little mm-hmm. right like so I'm not always if there is a stimuli I don't immediately react to it there is a space in my automatic space in which I note that there is something happening in me that is so if somebody is irritating me my immediate reaction is not to get irritated but to get this idea that I'm feeling irritated and in this moment of I'm feeling irritated the irritation either dissipates or reduces in intensity in the same way physically I note notice that if I'm leaning forward or my steps are going too fast I know immediately that I'm not in the moment so so I think those small physical cues uh, like break this action reaction cycle and I think that space is very magical for me because mm-hmm. it allows me to I guess live life with a little bit more silence than I would otherwise Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby It's me, Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, 
you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a good friend of mine, a mentor had told me once that, you know, human beings are the only species with the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And when yeah. I asked him what the key was to developing that, he said a meditative practice. And yes. of course, you know, that that sold me finally on cultivating a daily meditation practice. And even just doing 10 minutes a day, I'm kind of blown away by how less likely I am to react to things that used to once just cause me an insane amount of anxiety and stress. Exactly, exactly. And then when I once I come back from a year off like that, yeah. in, which, in which much of my time is not in deliberate meditation, but there is a lot of in, innate kind of desire to spend a lot of time in meditation. And uh, I, like I'm, I'm very, I guess I'm very silent for at least the first year. And then the world starts to take its toll and, and like keeps nipping, nipping, nipping. And then, you know, I need the year again. Mm-hmm. After, th- after four years is what I've noticed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I want to ask you a few more questions yeah, about um, growing up in the Himalayas and, and you know, just yeah. how different it is from what we sort of know of India, you know, because as I, as I was telling you before we hit record, my entire experience of India is my parents saying we're going to India for the summer and me thinking, great, <laughs> that's not a vacation. That's a punishment. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what perceptions of all of this we have that are wrong and, you know, what, what is a more accurate reality of what this all looks like? Uh, and then, of course, we'll, we'll start working our way into, into what the book is all about. Yeah, sure. So f- the first thing is that the Himalayas are actually almost as exotic as they might appear on paper. Like uh, when we were growing up, it, there are strange things that you see every day, which don't seem strange then. Now, because you are, that's your world, right? But mm-hmm. you do see yogis in their caves and all that kind of stuff like that you can think of from the Himalayas. So that happens. And and um, it's very idyllic in that way that, you know, you have a lot of free time and space and community and like playing in the mountainside. What, what's obviously not like um, talked about that much or, or is probably not covered is that the practical aspect of growing up there is pretty tough in some ways like for instance the schooling is terrible uh, when I came to Delhi in my 10th grade or whatever like my high school uh, I had never known I didn't know what a parallel line was because I like my teacher had never taught geometry in the nine years that I'd grown up there or like in the 14 years that I'd grown up there so 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 you know like I, I guess it's also backward in that form so I think it's almost like you have a like in that you always have the trade-off between you know uh, like uh, contem- like the time to uh, contemplate and the progress in the world almost like I think that trade-off is uh, in, in that uh, there is much more space there but much less focus on achievement and progress yeah yeah do you feel that um, having grown up there has made you a more enlightened person in your day-to-day life no I don't I, I think or maybe it's given it's planted some right questions I think like yeah. I, you know like that whole yoga sutras idea of uh, the the fact that the eagle spreads its wings high then brings its wings down, like being the kind of the cycle of life almost, that you have to, uh, like you have to experience growth in its fullest form, keep pushing yourself and your boundaries of growth and, ex- and, and like keep pushing yourself. And then there comes a point when you want nothing more in the world and you want to bring it down. Mm-hmm. Like you want to kind of like bring the wings down and spend inordinate amount of time, time in silence and contemplation. I don't think that's ever seeped into the West, right? Because... Uh, no matter what you do, you want more and more and more, not just materially, but emotionally you want to keep growing, keep doing more things, keep stretching yourself. There is never that time for you to think that I've experienced everything in the world. Now I have to just bring it down, like yeah. bring myself down. I think we just, I just grew up with that idea. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it came back. Like I, I like I had this very visceral feeling uh, about three, four years ago that there is nothing more that I want in this world. Like I don't want... Uh, like, like this is. I don't want to see anything more. I don't want to travel anywhere else. I, I like. I've seen everything I want to see, and I want to. So I almost. Uh, that's why we spent almost a year in an ashram, mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't like I was trying to be something. It was just what I felt like doing. Mm. Uh, because I, I think somewhere it's uh, seeped down. But here, I think the whole thrust is, like, like you know, our role models are like Elon Musk, who's like who's trying to get to Mars or whatever. Like that's the the whole culture is role modeling, more and more and more. And and I think in the yoga sutras and stuff that I grew up in, we did believe that there was a point in which at an individual level, you've experienced everything and you just have to complete your journey by going within. So I think the stuff like that really has helped in some form. 
So it sounds to me like reaching that point of fulfillment where we don't feel as if we want anything more uh, must be like the ultimate sense of freedom. Uh, at least that's what I think just from hearing the way you describe it. And yet yeah. I can't fathom the concept of reaching a point. I mean, I maybe experience it for like the briefest of moments every time I drop into a wave, maybe when I surf. Yeah. Uh, but I am wondering how we bring about that sense of satisfaction and the sense that we don't need more to be okay uh, in our lives, if that makes any sense at all. It makes a lot of sense, Srini. The, I, I, I'll unfortunately have to take this in a little bit of a mystical direction, which is the <laughs> point is that uh, when you grow up where I've grown up, um, this idea of life being a continuum of cause and effect and having many, uh, like this whole cause and effect cycle, karma continuing, is a very seeped in part of my thinking. So, so, so like said another way, if you're not feeling that innate tendency at this stage, then you don't have to bring it on almost. Like you, like you are just in this, in this life, you're meant to keep spreading the wings more and more and it's totally fine to do that. Mm. And and I think there will be a lifetime. If like that's why I'm saying, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a mystical viewpoint, but yeah. it's very seeped into my kind of thinking because of the like in which, like for instance, I'm very comfortable right now that in this life or at least at this phase where I'm thinking, I'm not gonna become a meditation teacher. I'm not gonna become a yogi in the Himalayas because I'm not ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. Like I still have this pull towards business and like getting my word out there and selling my novels. And I'm very the the difference though is that I'm very comfortable with it. Like I'm comfortable that that's what my, that's the nature of my evolution in this uh, life. Well, so, let's do this. Uh, yes. Let's shift gears and let's start start talking about the book. But where I yeah. want to start actually is by talking about fiction writing because it's a totally different kind of writing than I'm used to doing as a nonfiction business yeah. writer. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about your creative process for you know how an idea comes to life, how you take that idea and you know bring it into the form that it becomes a book, how you build characters, all of that, which I realize is a really deep question. Uh, but I, I'm just very curious about what the creative process for your work looks like. It's actually very simple for me, Shini, like uh, not simple, the act of doing it, but the Mm. conceptualization is always, I always uh, start with that I need two pillars, entertainment and meaning. Okay. And and if my work, if I'm able to crack entertainment and meaning, I'm going to then I just have to put in the work in order to get to the final output. So I almost start with the question of the, the meaning is very simple for me. Once again, I'm very, the question I ask myself is what is the biggest, deepest personal question that I'm struggling with? Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and the novel becomes my tool to answer it. Uh, and then I like, and the entertainment is what makes, I think, fiction special because entertainment allows you to create a, a new world that the reader, the new fictive dream that the reader enters and forgets themselves in. And almost like it's a touch of divinity in a way that you completely dissolve in the story. And, uh, and that's why I like the concept of entertainment so much. And then I just think about what is the way I'll answer the meaning question in a completely page-turning way. Mm-hmm. So, so I think those are the two. So when I conceptualized this novel, for instance, the meaning question was very clear because it had been haunting me for many years that I need to answer for myself very clearly the, the, like the hardest questions on the meaning of existence, the nature of creation, the nature of God. But I also knew that I didn't want to write a PhD thesis on that. So the entertainment, <laughs> the entertainment was I knew that I would write a journey through secret India that mm-hmm. nobody would have access to otherwise. I would create a secret world around hidden ashrams and caves and stuff. So uh, night markets and also, so, so I think those are the two pillars on which I create my story. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I do have to say, you, you know, you absolutely created a hidden India, one that was completely <laughs> off my radar. That's, that's actually what drew me into the book because I, I was so blown away by seeing this side of a country that I'd never seen. I'm curious uh, how much of your own life you use or uh, use as sort of inspiration for the material and the characters in the book, because at moments I kept wondering, I'm like, how much of this is autobiographical? Like which parts of this are, are, you know, you telling you, you borrowing elements from your own life. And how do you find that balance between borrowing elements from your own life to make something inspiring and entertaining, but not taking it so far that it, it basically becomes boring to the reader? Yeah, it's a good question. I think obviously a lot of it is uh, like the meaning, as I said, the emotional, yeah. every novel is emotionally autobiographical for me because I'm answering my own questions through it, right? And the entertainment part, uh, just, um, 
I guess the, 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 for me, the kind of the principle almost is that fiction should have its own propulsive force and like it should have its own propulsion, which means that the character should be making its own choices mm-hmm. and, and going along its own journey. So the moment I sense myself present as an author giving a message of any kind, I know that the fictive dream is going to break for my reader. So, so I almost just go with like the, uh, uh, the character asking a question, borrowing heavily from my own adventures. And that's why I think this year off is so important for me because I start living a life in that year because I'm outside my comfort zone so much. Like I'm like, you know, sleeping in train stations and this and that, that a lot of adventure comes into my life and almost all my novels have borrowed from that sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then like, you know, then I, I think I just let my characters, uh, pose myself. So in a sense, it's almost like if I think of my next novel, I haven't, I haven't even started writing it yet, but I do know that my meaning is a lot to do with fatherhood and all that stuff that I'm asking myself on what it means to be, um, a yogi in context of a family. And, and I think the meaning will come from that. And the entertainment will come from like, uh, we live in, uh, we'll in our next sabbatical, we plan to work in an orphanage in Cambodia for four years and live in Spain for four years, four, uh, sorry, for four months and then live in Spain, learning the guitar for four months as a family. And I think a lot of those experiences will lead to the, I guess the adventure and the entertainment that happens in the novel. Mm. Yeah. So makes me raise a question about what your daily uh, creative habits look like. Are you one of these people who wakes up in the morning and writes every day? Uh, do you keep journals? Like wh- what is, uh, what are your productivity systems and day-to-day habits look like? The productivity systems are set up for the four years to be incredibly productive and the one year to be completely unproductive. Almost. <laughs> so, and, and that I think is the, like, I think that balance is the reason for a little bit of transcendence kind of slipping into the work because the four years that I'm working and writing, if you will, I'm very workmanlike. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's down to a little bit of a science that because I write after work, uh, I write three days a week, call it Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I write for four hours on one weekend. So, so that's kind of my like very disciplined two hours of writing on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and four hours of writing on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, so, so net in a week, I write 10 hours or like a little bit more than 10 hours, but very disciplined. I keep doing that over a period of a couple of years at least, right? Mm-hmm. But in the year that I'm off, I'm like the most indisciplined person in the world, which is I only write when I want to. Wow. And, and there would be months at a stretch in the last sabbatical when I was in the Himalayas that I didn't write at all. I was just hiking a lot in the mountains and like meeting all these yogis and strange people and like just being in the moment. And, and then uh, Europe to India, again, I didn't write a word because I was just enjoying the experience of like traveling and slipping into. And then in Portugal, I just wrote in a spurt for like 10 or 12 hours a day. In three months, in a vill- I lived in a village and just write, wrote for three months and almost like completed the novel then. So I'm almost very... Um, it just uh, completely based on what, like it's totally slack. Mm. And with, but I think this is very good because if I was always tight, I think my novels would be very workmanlike. Yeah. And then when I'm in that slack period, now I can't recognize some of the portions I've written in the novel because they've come from that complete, like a dip into transcendence of some form, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's my creative process, like tight and slack. What, uh, has been one of the most impactful memories uh, from uh, your time in the Himalayas or your travels uh, of somebody that you've met that has influenced and shaped the work uh, that you've done in your books? Very good question. There is one, um, there's one afternoon I remember with this uh, yogi who'd come out of the cave after spending 11 years there. And like he, he, he had spent 11 years in a cave alone, just drinking milk that the, that the villagers would leave uh, out of his cave, you know? So he was in complete silence and all that stuff. So he came out after 11 years and he had started a school there in up in the mountains. I'm talking Gangotri, like very hard to get to. And, uh, he uh, like he started a school, but not with this Western sense of like, I'm going to change the destiny of kids and all that stuff. And like, you know, create the school with many branches that's going to change the world. Like not with that idea, but just like he had this tenor, like this innate kind of desire to teach a little of what he had learned. So I remember spending an afternoon with him, which in which he just kept answering my questions without me asking them. And in that moment, it never felt mystical at all in any form. It felt very real because I was like, I had been living in the Himalayas for three, four months then. And he, um, and, and, I, and I could just sense that like words are just like a grosser form of thought and thought is just a grosser form of feeling. And he's just answering feelings that are coming to me. And I remember these three, four hours that I spent with him talking about and like talking, I guess, in that way about enlightenment and 
what living in a cave felt like and i and i just remember coming out of that experience without thinking much but but this whole idea that i cover in the book about the like the superpowers of yogis and all that stuff uh, that i think all originated from that afternoon hmm. where i was like i have met someone who's just viewing all everything as one energy like something is grosser something is more subtler so there is really no limit to a human who has experienced that in a very real way who has just experienced one energy everywhere and one consciousness everywhere and everything being subtle or gross manifestations of it so i think a lot of that inspired my writing hmm. well I think that makes a, a perfect setup to let you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about the book. And then I have, I have a few more other questions. Uh, about yeah, sure. The so the book is about a, a banker who becomes a yogi in the Himalayas, but it's not a self-transformation kind of story at all. Like, like, or I guess the transformation is subtle. The bigger, I guess the more dominant portion of the book is the page turning adventure through hidden India. So he, like the guy goes from to hidden night markets and ashrams and caves and in this process transforms because of the experience he's had. Um, I think that's a good summary of the book, a, a journey of transformation as a and a page turning adventure through India. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a, that, like I said, I think that's a very accurate description. And, uh, you know, as somebody who had spent time in India, it was really cool to see this other side of it. It made me much more curious. I had sworn off ever going back to India again. I thought I'm never spending my own money to go on vacation where I'm going to be able to deal with nothing but noise, dirt and pollution. But it really made me rethink uh, wanting to visit. Yeah, because the remoter you get in the Himalayas, the more almost purer your experience becomes. So the place that I've written about in the Himalayas is about uh, like it's almost like uh, from Delhi you have to take a bus to Rishikesh which is a, like a six hour journey from Rishikesh you have to go to Uttarkashi which is another seven hour journey by bus and then you can only go hiking up six seven hours up so it's almost so remote to get to mm -hmm. and yet there are people who've, who are living there and they've like uh, I, I guess th that's why the environment is so kind of pure and off the the conventional idea that you have of India yeah 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 so, uh, I want to ask uh, a few questions that I typically haven't asked in interviews before. Um, what have been sort of the artistic influences in your life? Like if you could name a piece of art, whether it be a movie, you know, music, musician or, or a book, something that has influenced and shaped the, the work that you've done, uh, what would you say it is? The, um, a couple of things would have shaped it in surprising influences. I would say Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, surprising and I'll tell you why. And not the, not actually the movie the book Okay, it, it's very formative for me in some form because uh, my aunt who was visiting from the US left the book in India when I was visiting college or something or coming back from college and I remember being very transformed by reading the book in some form and I like I just chose at that point to live a life which was full of adventure in the way Forrest's life was and I think for the first time and, and must be age 22, 23 I think I realized the power of a story to transform in a way that I'd never felt with a diet of like self-improvement books, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like I, so I'd read a lot of like uh, things that we used to read in India that like Ayokoka's biography or all that kind of stuff. And none of them had really kind of truly viscerally changed me. And I remember reading Forrest Gump and feeling changed as a person. So I think almost the seed of this whole idea of entertainment and meaning, like meaning always wrapped up in a very entertaining bundle uh, came through Forrest Gump. And that's been my writing tradition forever. Like, uh, yeah, so and I've appreciated books like that, The White Tiger, for instance, the most recent book that I remember in which I couldn't stop turning the pages, and yet obviously it was very real about India. Mm -hmm. So again, I've I've kept I've like I've really enjoyed these, uh, and I've never almost enjoyed books like, uh, and I hate to say it because I never criticize uh, books, but I like I've never been able to enjoy The Alchemist right. or Zen, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or Celestine Prophecy because I recognize the presence of an author in these books mm -hmm. who's trying to communicate a message to me. While when I look at books like Forrest Gump or something, there's no author. It's just the character, the white tiger or whatever. So I'm, I'm very influenced by literature in which there is no uh, inherent meaning at all, but then yet it kind of completely leaves a very deep impact on you because the story is so melts. You melt into the story completely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, nobody would have ever mentioned Forrest Gump as an influence, you know, but it's a very enduring influence. It almost makes me want to read the book now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been awesome. Uh, just, I mean, you're full of so many nuggets and, and just pearls of wisdom. I, I like interviews like this because there's really no map and we're left with a lot more questions than we are answers at the end of something like this. 
Yeah, yeah, because I think I'm in the like, yeah, because I think I don't have a fixed end state of standing on a pedestal and giving advice of it. Like, you know, in the sense, I haven't become like it's a process of becoming in a way. Mm. Well, speaking of questions, I have one last one, which I'm I'm sure you've heard me ask since you've listened to our interviews. Um, What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I was thinking about that, Srini. I think that what makes something very like it's the concept of dharma again. When I see somebody living their dharma well, Mm -hmm. which is acting in line with their innate tendency, I think that makes them really, um, you know, inspirational for me because, uh, as I said, for me, Elon Musk is equally inspiring as this yogi who had spent 11 years in a cave and was teaching six school students in a village a little bit, uh, a little bit after their school. Because he was just like, I could see the purity of someone living in accordance with their tendency and not trying to be someone else. Yeah. So there's this purity of dharma, I think, of like just, and, and I think I feel like our whole culture has become giving us messages about you should become an entrepreneur, follow your dream, hustle, this, that. And while there is a lot of purity, if you're a lawyer who's just acting with a lot of purity in his law, like, like I think that's what, if that's your dharma, then act with purity in that dharma. And I think there's some, there's a exceptionalism in that, which is beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Well, this has been phenomenal. And, you know, I, for, for everybody listening, I can't recommend this book highly enough. I mean, I don't read fiction books and I read it cover to cover in like three days. I couldn't put it down. So uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and insights with our listeners. Oh, Srini, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.